Welcome to Flex Perspectives, where I interview the thought leaders, innovators, and executives shaping the future of flexible work. Flex Perspectives is brought to you by the Flex Index, the world's most robust source for full-time, hybrid, and remote work requirements. The Flex Index represents more than 6,000 companies, 30,000 office locations, and 100 million people. It's a great place to start if you're looking for your next flexible work career opportunity. Today, my guest is Hunter Walk. Hunter is the co-founder and partner at Homebrew, an early-stage venture capital firm. Hunter is one of the best in the business and has backed some incredible technology companies over the years. Today, we'll discuss the role location plays for early-stage technology teams. We'll talk about whether Hunter thinks it's important for early-stage startups to collaborate in person, whether a startup's office policy impacts his desire to invest, and where he sees flexibility trending in tech. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating. That helps new listeners find the podcast. Hunter, welcome. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me on. I, those always sound a little bit like eulogies, but I'm uh, I'm glad that it's uh, you know I'm still alive here. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, Hunter, because you and I have known each other now. I think we met for the first time in 2014, so it's crazy to me that it's coming up on 10 years. Uh, you and I have a pretty hilarious story of the first time we met. Uh, I think it was probably. Of the hundreds of venture capital meetings I've done, it's probably the most memorable one I've ever had. Uh, do you remember <laughs> that in that particular situation? Yes, yes, I love it. So we got, I believe we got introduced via our mutual friend, Russ Fraden, who I absolutely love, uh, just a, a wonderful guy. And so he sung, you know, the praises of what you're building. And so we, we had you in, and I guess this was when, you know, people still met in offices and stuff like that. Um, and so we got together and um, you and your co-founder, took me through, you know, sort of what you're building, your backgrounds, you know, why, and it was all very interesting, you know, but I remember there was like one thing missing. Um, usually co-founders, you know, sort of will lead or at least finish with a little bit of, you know, sort of how they know each other, how they met, like why they're working together and you hadn't supplied that. And so I remember, you know, before we sort of got into, Hey, do you have any questions for me? Here's what our process looks like saying, well, you know, how, how do you guys know each other? And there was sort of a pause. And then you said, well, and you, you pointed to your co-founder, you said, well, I've known him his whole life. And I said, oh, that must be a really interesting story. And then there was another pause and you said, <laughs> you don't realize we're brothers, do you? And no, I didn't know you two were brothers. I like focus on first names. I don't really look at last names and until I, especially when I've met somebody for the first time, like until I am able to grip on to something and like remember them for that. I'm kind of like, you know, name blind, face blind. And so I said, okay, this is going to be a story that uh, both of us retell, hopefully lovingly. Um, and so I'm glad we're retelling it together uh, lovingly. And like you said, almost 10 years later. It's pretty unbelievable. It's very funny, Hunter. I think that changed the way that John and I pitched forever afterward. I think it was always, <laughs> this is my co-founder and my brother that always got, they came, came through after that. So I appreciate that moment in teaching us the way that we have to kind of describe ourselves, even when we think it's semi-obvious. I uh, would love to hear a little bit more about how you even got into early stage venture in the first place. Like what made you passionate about this topic and something you wanted to pursue? Yeah, to be honest, it wasn't intentional in the sense of I never had put on my career path, like become a VC. It was much more, you know, ultimately all these things are always about people. Um, and so this one was much more about when my co-founder at Homebrew, Sacha Patel and I got back together, we had worked for about three, four years together at Google, um, 03 to 07. And then after he left to go back into venture, he had gone back and forth and, um, we had, you know, stayed in touch personally, but also professionally. 
Um, you know, there's sometimes people who you sort of say like, ah, at some point it'd be nice to find our way back together. Maybe we're on the same team, maybe whatever. And then there's sometimes folks you're just like, we're going to do something. So Sacha and I wanted to do something, but we needed a blank sheet of paper moment uh, versus, you know, I'm sure you've had people like try to convince you to come join something, you know, and you're like, well, I don't know. I'd really like to figure out what's right for me. So he tried to come. He's like, oh, come start a company, you know, uh, we'll back you when he was at Battery. Or he joined Twitter. He was running product to Twitter and while well, I was running product YouTube. And he's like, oh, you should come over here. And I'm like, wait, wait, what do you mean come over there? Like, if I came over there, it would be to take your job. And he's like, no, 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 no. Like, you know what we should do, like help with <laughs> help with product strategy. And I'm like, help with product strategy. You mean the guy that like go, comes in meetings and suggests like, you know, what should happen and then walks out without any responsibility. I'm like, everyone hates that guy. Like, why would I want to be that guy? But, you know, he left Twitter. Sounds like my life as a consultant, by the way. Before exactly, I, uh, exactly. Well, then you get paid. You just leave a binder behind and you're like, if they if it fails, they didn't, they screwed up the implementation of, our, of my wonderful ideas. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, he left Twitter. This was like middle of 2011. Uh, he'd been running product or left there. I had uh, stopped running product at YouTube, but still been at YouTube doing some stuff that I wanted to finish up and sort of decided that it was time for me to leave Google. So we had that blank sheet of paper a moment. He and I got back together. I mean, we'd spent time, but like got together in a directed way. And to fast forward through that, where we ended up was Homebrew. And the reason we ended up with Homebrew, our early stage venture fund, was because we decided that we were making a 20-year decision, not a two-year decision. It was like, what do you want to do for the rest of our careers together? We decided we were more interested in other people's ideas than our own. I guess we'd spent, you know, he'd gone back and forth between venture, but I guess like primarily when you think of product management, you think of kind of working on your own ideas or the ideas of your team. And we wanted to work on other people's ideas. And the reason we wanted to work on other people's ideas was because so much had changed. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 50 this year. So when I got into tech, when I got, got to the Valley, it was sort of the late 90s. And, you know, software was only doing so much. Like it was always magical, but it was only transforming so many consumers' lives and so many, you know, a limited number of businesses. And now, you know, Mark Andreessen, software eats the world. You know, I say software enables the world. It's a little less predatory. But, you know, it meant that founders uh, could build software that could, you know, not just 1% of consumers, but 100% of consumers, not just the US, but the world, not just tech building for tech companies, but construction, agriculture, healthcare industries that predate the PC. And wouldn't the world be a better place if the founders building those companies, um, you know, if we could like some number of them, maybe just increase like the velocity and probability of their success slightly. I mean, that's all I think about in the best case scenario we do or sort of like a force multiplier that, that hopefully um, is privileged enough to work with and be on behalf of founders who are building things that matter to them. And if they have chosen, you know, valuable problems to solve and are the types of founders who want to solve them, you know, to the fullest extent they can, like what they build will be valuable. And so that's what we do. Uh, we make about 10 to 12 investments a year. Uh, so we try to really sort of stay small and focused. For the first nine years of homebrew, we used other people's money, uh, endowments, foundations, that type of stuff. Um, but at the beginning of last year, I guess 2022, um, switched to a largely personal capital model, um, at least for now. Um, so really our skin in the game. The way I sort of talk about it is, you know, we have sort of the alignment of angel investors, right? So like the type, I'm sure you have people on your cap table who like, you know, they just, you know, they're there for you, right? Like, um, obviously you're in business together, but like they're there for you. And so we have the alignment of an angel investor. It's, it's our money. It's our, it's, it's what we do, but sort of the, the gravitas, the experience and the, you know, network of an institutional investor, a, a larger VC. And so we think that's a nice value proposition for founders. And, um, uh, you know, and it's, it's the way that, um, that, you know, we go about our day. Um, so, th so that's how we got into it. It was much more about a relationship about the idea that there's wonderful people building, you know, 
um, companies of you know high interest, high value, and that if we could just help them a little bit, um, that you know we could make a make the second half of our career out of out of that versus you know sort of building our own products. I love that story, and I love the long term arc and in twenty year perspective. It's a hard thing to commit to, right? In terms of how do you think about that much time and how to spend your career over yeah. that time? But to build incredible things requires a little bit of of patience and, and long term thinking. I couldn't have, you know, I'm glad I started. I, I loved being a product manager. I loved that part of my career. I was sort of felt like I was ready to move from the doing to the helping side, largely because um, I don't love being managed and I don't love managing and like people. And that was, you know, that's sort of part of being, you know, parts of teams or organizations. I much rather be a coach, a mentor, a helper, um, a roadie, a roadie to the rock stars. Um, and so for me, I was probably thinking about something that was going to be either more like polymath, like I could do a bunch of different stuff or, you know, a little less kind of org structure, but I don't think I would have gone into venture per se, if it wasn't for Sacha. Yeah. Uh, having the right person, the great co-founder who you've known your entire life, for example, uh, is a pretty valuable thing, right? Um, uh, it, it's, it is, you know, look, the greatest privilege in the world is to be able to sort of work with people you enjoy working with who make you better, who, who like, aren't just, don't just like tolerate who you are, you know, the weird parts, but like they want the full you and they want to help you be the best version of you. Um, it's such a joy. Um, so I'm very fortunate. Our wives, our families, our friends, our wives, are friends, like the biggest sort of, um, disappointment I'd say, um, over the last decade is we actually spend less time together as families and couples because he and I see each other all the time for work. And so we don't get the families together as much. And, you know, so I, I think maybe our, our goal for the rest of this year or next year is to spend more time together as families, not just as, 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 as co-founders. I totally understand that. It took, it took John and I a long time before we figured out how to, I mean, at least five years, I would say, before we could have dinner or spend a weekend with family and scoop just wouldn't come up, right? Yeah. Just be like, okay, we're just not going to talk about this stuff right now. Whatever's at work, we can leave that elsewhere and just have personal relationships. It's a, it's a little bit bipolar almost in terms of the way that you have to think about it or kind of uh, split your brain in terms of the, uh, the, the relationship and allowing both sides of that to flourish. Yeah. I don't, I could not, um, I, um, admire that because I don't think I'd be capable of doing that with a, a family member. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, it takes a lot of practice. It took a lot of time to figure it out. Uh, and we still work on it every day and try yeah. to get better. You know, I think, um, Hunter, I, th I imagine some folks that are listening probably very familiar with Homebrew. A lot of folks may have never have heard of Homebrew before. Uh, what are some of the companies that maybe people would have heard of that you've backed or, or, or been, been a part of their journey over time? And what are some of the ones that maybe folks haven't heard of yet that you're excited about that are, are on the come up? Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, you know, it, we really, we are so lucky uh, to, but well, you know, some of it is just people sometimes joke, how do you become a good venture investor? It's like, get lucky early and then let the attribution, you know, compound, you know. So we were fortunate to, you know, become involved in some um, pretty successful companies relatively early in Homebrew's existence. You know, we started late 2012, early 2013, and we're part of some of the earliest financings uh, in uh, companies such as Chime, which is sort of the largest, you know, people call it a neobank, but it's really sort of financial software that helps um, average consumers, you know, sort of access uh, their money and spend it in places. They have a debit card product, um, largest, you know, sort of um, competitive bank um, to sort of the incumbents. So we're really proud of the work that we've done with them. Uh, in the opener, you sort of mentioned Gusto, amazing, you know, sort of empowering um, SMB, uh, SME enterprise uh, payroll and benefit solution. You know, the, I sort of think about a great business model is like, what are the things that you have to do in order to run a business, <laughs> you know, but like, don't need to become an expert in like, have zero competitive advantage if you 
run your payroll really well. And so, you know, um, companies of all sizes just hand that over to Gusto and Gusto take care of it for them. More recently, or at least a little bit like sort of name, less name brand, but equally sizable, there's a company called Shield, Shield AI, um, that is essentially building the autonomous, uh, autonomous pilot for the public sector, um, starting with kind of the Department of Defense, government, that type of stuff. Um, they, if you, if there's a Netflix special out right now that they participated in called Killer Robots. It's obviously, you know, sort of a little bit of a um, attention-getting title. They're not building killer robots. Um, they're mostly focused on uh, information and intelligence gathering that saves lives, not takes lives. But started by brothers, um, which was why it came to mind. Um, one of whom uh, was a Navy SEAL, uh, came back from some deployments, um, thankfully safely, but came to his brother, who is a, an engineer, um, and said, you know, I lost friends and we lost, you know, sort of human beings, civilians, largely when we went into areas where the information was inaccurate or went into areas that were unsafe in order to get information. Like, why can't we solve this with machinery as opposed to people? And they built shield around that. Um, most recently in testing their uh, autonomous uh, pilot flew an F-16, um, beat a human pilot. Um, so wow. I'm really hopeful for what they can what they can do in the future. Um, you also asked a little bit about maybe uh, up and comers or, or folks who, who are, are still earlier in their journey. Um, because I know, I know our topic and I know what we're gonna get into, I'm gonna pick two that have chosen uh, to be uh, remote or distributed teams. One is Athena. Um, they are started by two amazing female entrepreneurs. They're in the, they're a software product for compliance training. Um, again, like, what did I say? Another much like Gusto, right? Something that companies have to do, want to be good at, um, want to, um, provide, uh, for their teams, but, um, you know, becoming an expert in doing it yourself is not part of a, you know, a business model. Um, so there's a company that will will do it for you via software. So Athena, starting with things like um, sexual harassment training, so on and so forth, has a modern software product that's great. The founders are based uh, much like much like you in the in the uh, New York City Brooklyn area. Um, so you maybe have bumped into them on the streets and not even known it. But, cool, um, love it. Uh, they they've you know their clients include Snap, Zoom, a bunch of large companies, and a second one called Kettle. So Kettle is in the uh, risk assessment business for, uh, fire, wind, like hurricanes type of stuff. Um, and, uh, so they're a, a reinsurance company in the insurance business. They have basically building better data models, um, that forecast risk for property damage. Um, when it comes to, you know, some of the major climate events, the storms of the century, fires of the century that seem to be happening more frequently than once every three years right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is a huge problem, not just from a, a human standpoint, but from, you know, in, in insurance is what we use to sort of backstop the, um, the disruption to our lives and businesses when these things could happen. And, and because the major insurance companies don't have risk models um, that are, you know, modern, updated, and um, maybe as nuanced as they could be, um, they just sort of pull out of markets or overcharge premiums to everybody and things like that. And it's creating a real problem in California where I live. Um, some of the major uh, insurers have stopped writing new homeowner policies, all these sorts of things. So when you think about, you know, what are some of the quote unquote non-sexy things that have to happen in order for people just to be able to, you know, live their lives in a dynamic changing world, you know, things like Kettle, I think are, you know, tremendously important. And so all of these things, you know, why did we get involved? I sort of joke that our decision-making is like a sandwich, people, problem, people. So, you know, uh, trying to evaluate the, the founders, is this the right 
um, business for them. Like what's the founder market fit? Are they mission driven? Why are they doing this? And um, can we help them? Are the ex our expectations shared? Are we going to be able to create a great relationship? And then that middle part, the problem is just like, is the problem large? Is it urgent? Is it valuable? If you have two of those three, I think you have a sustainable business and you have all three, you might have a venture scale. So uh, somebody once told me, I didn't even realize that they're like, oh, your, your thesis is love. I mean, like, what do you, what do you mean? They're like LUV, large, urgent, valuable. I was like, oh, that's great. I'm oh, gonna, I like that. I'm going to steal that. Yeah. So I look for love problems, I guess, larger than large, urgent than valuable. <laughs> that's great. And, 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 and such powerful missions across the different companies that you're talking about in, in, in very varied spaces. I think, I think one of the most interesting things, and maybe even to segue into what you're already starting to talk about in terms of you know, remote work and the models in terms of, of how some of these companies operate is uh, you have very wide breadth and over a number of years now in terms of looking at different types of companies, different founding teams or structures, um, as well as how do you think about what industry they're, they're participating in. And so one of the things I'm curious about, there have been some folks like you had mentioned Mark Andreessen earlier and talk about software eating the world. Um, other folks like Elon Musk or, or Sam Altman have come out pretty strongly against some of the fully distributed or kind of fully remote work. What are you seeing right now in an early stage? Are you seeing a, a particular like lean one way or the other in terms of model, uh, fully remote, hybrid, and, and, and does it matter to you in terms of how companies are setting up? Yeah. So it's interesting because obviously we went through a period of time during sort of peak pandemic, post-vaccination, where you didn't really have a choice if you were starting a company or you were sort of managing a company. You were all of a sudden, you know, a remote or at least a hybrid company by necessity, if not by design. And that gave us a bunch of, you know, sort of a taste of what this looked like. If you, you know, we go back before that, of course, there were different types of hybrid situations. Not a lot of startups aren't built around, you know, being in the office from nine to five, five days a week, you know, work gets done where work gets done. But all of a sudden we sort of had a bunch of, we, 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 you know, accelerated development or tried a bunch of scenarios that before were only sort of, you know, a little bit more anomalous. Um, people were experimenting with, you know, teams maybe overseas for, of supposedly cost or access to talent. Um, you had companies like Automatic and so on and so forth in that moment who were like, you know, uh, evangelists for this. But by and large, you know, there was a large gap, you know, in between that where most people, you know, practiced as CEOs what they had experienced, you know, as managers or individual contributors, which is you have an office, you go into it, you know, um, and that's where work happens. I'd say we are seeing uh, company. And, you know, we invest often when it's only the founders or the founders and a few people. Um, so it's very small. And what I'd say is we've seen a deliberateness and that's, that's really what matters to me. Right. So sometimes I'll get asked the question, what do you think is best? And I was like, well, let me tell you a deliberate, consistent, well-applied version of any of these things <laughs> is better than a, you know, unintentional, inconsistent, um, misguided, you know, attempt at any of these things, right? So give me founders who understand what they're getting into, who have chosen and realized there's trade-offs in any of these models and um, can articulate, you know, how they are taking advantage of the um, the pros, you know, of, of, of any of um, these working styles and how they're mitigating, you know, some of the, the challenges. The anecdotal data to me suggests that, uh, you know, uh, some sort of what I'd call hard hybrid as opposed to soft hybrid slash in office is um, still preferred for a lot of venture backed seed stage companies. Um, that's to say, you know, people are thinking about um, for the, you know, first zero to 20 people, can we spend more time together than apart? And um, 
what I mean for that and the difference between what I call sort of soft hybrid versus hard hybrid, soft hybrid is kind of, well, you know, we're in the office when we need to be in the office and we'll sort of adjust what that means. And um, not everybody is, you know, local. And so we don't all come into the offices the same day, you know, that type of stuff. Whereas hard hybrid is like, we're in office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, between this and that, you know, Mondays and Fridays, you know, you work from anywhere. We, we work generally in an Eastern time zone, blah, 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 blah. And I think the reasons that we see that, including I think all of our New York companies, all the companies in New York that started during the pandemic um, are now in office after going through a, a, a period of sort of... Um, in office five days a week or in office in that kind of what you described three, as a hard three hybrid? To five days, three to five days a week. Um, and and I think we can talk about why New York is an asterisk in general, a positive asterisk in a sense. Um, I think it's for a few reasons. I think one, you know, people practice, uh, people are might likely to use the muscles that they've trained before. And like I said, I think most people, if you are starting a company after three to five years of work experience, 10 to 12 years of work experience, you were trained on being in an office. The way you manage, it probably relies on some degree of management by walking around, you know, one-on-ones together type of stuff. So I think it's just easier. Um, there's a habit, right? And so it sometimes you're like, well, that's how I know how to do it. You know, um, I'm just gonna continue doing it that way. Um, I also think that there is, um, after a period of prolonged maybe separation, there's actually a little bit, not just amongst, you know, sometimes I think people see this as very top down, like, well, it's a bad CEO who needs to, you know, sort of manage by walking around, you know, you should give your people as much leniency as well, you know, but I actually, you know, we're seeing in a lot of cases, team members, especially again, New York is an asterisk, you know, who want to not just work out of an apartment or a coffee shop you know, all day, like want to, in a way that respects, you know, sort of a balance in their lives and so forth, but like want to be with coworkers. And part of what they're signing up for at a seed state startup often is I want to meet people who are, you know, like me, uh, taking on the same types of risks. Um, I want to feel like we're, you know, pushing that boulder up the hill together, um, as opposed to working separately and combining. Um, and then the third thing I think why is, and, and, I, and I am a believer in this, I think if you were going to tell me generally at the earliest stages of a company without knowing anything else about the people you've assembled, do you think they're more likely to succeed if they are um, together frequently um, or uh, together infrequently? And I think I bias towards they're more likely to succeed if they're together frequently. Um, for speed of ideation, for trust and working relationship, um, that doesn't mean those things can't be formed um, in various hybrid or remote scenarios. And like I said, I'll take a deliberate, well-run version of any of those things over, you know, bad management hybrid or bad management in office. But I am seeing a little bit more of a, um, you know, return to form, let's say, at least around, you know, what I'd call kind of hard hybrid, you know, slash in office. Some kind of more structured few days a week in, you know, where everybody's in at the same time type of um, type of model. Yeah. And I think it's, like, you know, in a lot of these cases, because these companies are still small enough where they haven't had to question, you know, yet whether to expand to multi-honed, they don't have international customer bases yet, so they haven't had to put people locally. Um, they're sort of running, you know, hybrid with people actually then deciding to sort of, you know, come into the office sometimes other days, but, but more for working time, you know, rather than meeting time. Right. I think the best, you know, ultimately I think like Asana and other sort of actually project planning tools like should control or guide when we're together and when we're apart, because it really turns out that, um, it's more about team and project phase 
as to whether being together or not is the most productive. And that's a very dynamic, you know, sort of scenario. But because, you know, everybody has lives too, and the choice of where you live and how you plan your schedule and how you take care of your kids and who walks your dog and, you know, and and when you're at your most alert and all that type of stuff is very individual that we have to come up with sort of a one size fits all, you know, guideline. I mean, I guess one would argue you don't have to, that you can sort of put that together more dynamically. But I actually think, you know, um, we will grow, you know, we will grow more nuanced with this over time as some of the tools we have um, are more fine grained and maybe more data driven than what we have today, which is basically like schedule planning and, you know, red or green, like, you know, talk to me or don't talk to me right now. Yeah, totally. Yeah, one interesting thing that we find, and as you know, we have a lot of data on this stuff, right? Because of the, the flex index and, and capturing policies is we find that still, even despite some of the things you're talking about in terms of you know, early stage value in uh, close uh, co-location, being able to collaborate and ideate and, and the speed at which that happens, I think north of like 80% of the firms that we track, I think at that size are still either what you would describe as soft hybrid, right? So mm-hmm. we call it employee's choice. Employee chooses whether how often mm-hmm. to go into the office or is fully remote, uh, meaning they have no offices at all and have started out fully remote. And one of the things I wonder, and I'm curious whether this even impacts the way you think about do you invest or not, or how you advise companies on this is um, a lot of times when I ask, I'm like, okay, well, how did you think about that relative to some of the benefits that you were describing in terms of, of co-location and collaboration? I hear a lot about cost structure, right? If I don't have to spend money on real estate, you know, what does that mean in terms of how far my money can go? When do I reach break even? Can I invest that in talent or other things? Um, the other thing I hear a lot is around just like access to talent, right? In terms of where I can hire and can I only hire locally and access to that office or can I hire more broadly? And maybe that has changed a little bit in the in the nature of tech layoffs and what's happened yeah. over the last year or two in terms of the talent market. But just curious, how, how are you hearing or seeing any of those things? I'm and, smiling. and what are you talking to companies about when this stuff comes up? Yeah, I'm smiling because I was going to say, um, actually, in some ways, I think those are the two worst reasons to to do remote or um, soft soft hybrid employee choice. And I guess, let me say why. Um, so I think any company that I work with that once had a you know rent line item and it was like, well, now that we're a remote company or hybrid company, I'm going to zero that out. I'm like, no, like assume you're going to spend the same amount that you would on physical facilities, because what you're going to spend that on is making sure that, you know, everybody has the right equipment work set up at home that the software, you might need to, and different types of software that helps manage different types of meetings you have, different types of cadence, different types of asynchronous work product. Um, you might have uh, your your rent <laughs> budget might move right to travel and offsites. Um, totally. When our team's going to get together. And, and so not to say that it's in actuality a cost-neutral decision. For some, it might be. For some, they might save money. But I think doing it on the notion that it is um, dramatically cheaper just because you're not paying a landlord actually underserves your team and underserves the company. And so I sort of suggest to people that they think about it as um, cost neutral um, from that, because if you if you do sort of, you know, if you zero it out, then you're much likely, less likely to approve, you know, that boondoggle offsite or whatever. The offsite that sounds like a boondoggle. But if you just assume it's going to cost the same, you're not saving money and you have to figure out how and when people should work together, what tools that they need, what benefits packages look like when you um, are removing some of the things that you normally associate with being provided in office and and you want to provide that in a more distributed fashion. So, you know, 
So you might have better data. Back to you, Hunter, yeah. just to make sure I understand. So, so in, in some ways, I think what I'm hearing you say is you would almost advise startups not to think about this as a quantitative or a financial decision, right? Like actually think about what's going to be best for you in terms of operating collaboration, you know, what you think is going to lead you to the best outcomes. Assume it is not cheap. Assume it is, is not assume that, Exactly. Assume that there is no financial benefit to you one way or the other yep. in terms of at least the, the way you pivot your thinking on this topic. Yeah. On the talent side. So I, I obviously agree, like in the sense that well, if you're telling me I'm trying to hire, you know, a particular skill set and there's a thousand of those people within a 20 mile radius of me, but a million of them across the world, if I'm trying to hire one, don't I have a better shot at the million than the thousand? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, you, 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 it's hard to argue that. But I guess what I'd say is that I feel like people um, throw that notion out there without sort of first kind of figuring out two things. Um, my, my basic belief is that if you do not have a good hiring process, if you don't know how to hire talent, how to attract them, why somebody who has a good job, why a passive job seeker would like come to your startup, take a pay cut, you know, that type of stuff, just expanding the geographic aperture, you know, um, will either produce no difference, <laughs> you will still fail, or, um, you know, you'll have a moment of like more candidates, you know, um, but you actually won't know how to spot and pick talent. And more so than ever, talented people, you're, you're competing against more people than ever to more companies, you know, than ever as well. And so your ability to attract, quote unquote, A plus talent, those skills need to be developed independent of your, you know, office policies. <laughs> and then again, apply it based upon how you want to run your, how you want to run your company. I've never seen a company that says we struggle to hire talent locally. Um, but you know, so, so we decided to not just look locally, look globally and, and that solved all our other product, you know, distribution finance. Like, no, you probably have to figure out why isn't this resonating with talented people locally. And then once that's repeatable, like, great, decide that, you know, global makes sense. Now, of course, you know, sometimes if there's very specialized skill sets or people are like, look, we're trying to transform the chemical engineering industry. We have a company doing that. And there are clusters. Uh, we want to hire some people from industry and there's clusters around these academic centers or clusters around these commercial centers. Um, and we happen to be based in somewhere other than those. And we don't want to move there. I'd be like, yeah, that's probably right. You're probably the talent you want to reach you know, is disproportionately not local. <laughs> and so it makes sense to think about how do you hire where people are. But just like the broad stroke of we suck at recruiting and can't convince great people to come to our company locally. So somehow, you know, hiring across all the zip codes makes us a better company. It's like, no, it doesn't, you know, so I guess I like a little bit of the Darwinism <laughs> that sort of says like startups are hard. Um, so, you know, make sure you figure out how to become a great company and use your, you know, your office policy in a way that's consistent with executing against that rather than seeing sort of relaxing, you know, some of the constraints as a salve for things that otherwise aren't working for you. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. One, one thing I'm curious about you know, maybe to kind of like talk about this in a couple of different ways. You know, one, as you mentioned, you, you usually get involved in companies early, right? A couple of founders, mm -hmm. founders, and a few team members. Uh, 
how do you envision that scales out over time? Like, do you envision that that set of companies is then going to only kind of like build in that one location or yeah. is it going to distribute faster, you think, into different offices in different locations? Yeah, no, I mean, I see it already. And I mean, I think, you know, the question sort of leads to the answer, right? Which is obviously as companies get bigger, they end up for various reasons, you know, not just staying within a single city or single, single office structure. Um, that can they can grow organically. They can go through acquisitions. They can grow about putting people where the customers are. I've seen all different configurations. Um, realistically, again, this is a generalization, but I think it's fair um, to discuss. As you build out a manager rank, as you sort of expand your org, you get people with uh, you get a, a a larger number of people who are deeper into their careers. Um, people who are deeper in their careers. It's fair to say statistically have more work experience, statistically are older, statistically have made other sets of choices about where they live, what their life looks like. And it's not like work hard, not work hard, you know, that it's just, you know, my, my, my New York companies as an example, don't have a lot of people who live in Jersey with families yet, right? Um, that's a talent pool that cuts across sales, marketing, you know, engineering management, For all sure. those sorts of things. And they will invariably... Um, want to hire those people. And so whether it's, you know, California <laughs> or the tri-state area, like you're going to have to figure out, well, as we go from 10 people to 50 people to 250 people, how do we flex, expand, think about the way we're working to make sure that um, we are not uh, excluding folks from our hiring pipeline um, for reasons that don't benefit our company, right? We're not excluding based upon um, skill level, you know, but, you know, uh, geography, uh, you know, sort of um, number of kids in, you know, number of kids in school, you know, commute, like that type of stuff. Like those are all bad reasons to exclude people. Um, now on the flip side, like, you know, I, I have no problem with anybody, no matter what point in their career they are, deciding to prioritize aspects of their um, preferences or, lifestyle over their work. That's totally cool. Like, um, so I, I don't, you know, say like, well, if you're not willing to commute 90 minutes away each day, like, do you really care about work? It's like, no, that's bullshit. Like who would want to do that? That sounds terrible. Um, I understand why that person, um, would want to work locally or remotely. Um, but you know, at the same time that comes with trade-offs as well. Right. So, uh, if you want to optimize for where you live, uh, and optimize for a particular working, not working, you know, sort of uh, on off calendar, like that's fine. Um, the nice thing about the world we're in now is like, you could find a good job, right? Um, that meets your needs. It may or may not be at your current company. And that's okay too. Like, as we came out of the pandemic, I told a bunch of our founders, like, hey, look, be deliberate about your decisions and realize that you're going to have, no matter what you decide, you will probably have a period of inflated, regretted attrition over the next 12 to 24 months as other as your employees decide what they want too. And that's fine. There's other companies that you compete with decide also what, what exactly. their policies going to be and people sort themselves out. It's, a little, it's just a great resort. The 5 to 10% of people who decided that they didn't want to be remote because they actually like coming into the office periodically, they like meeting their colleagues, and, and I have examples of those, they will move to companies that have decided to do hard hybrid you know, in office and your, some of your employees who, um, moved out of, you know, moved during the pandemic or had family situations that changed or just decided that they really enjoy working from their, their home or, you know, uh, a coffee shop down the block, um, and don't want to 
you know, take the train into the city um, five days a week, like those folks will find different jobs. Like that's totally cool. Like don't be afraid of that. I think sometimes leaders get afraid of making a decision, but it's impossible. This is like, you know, it goes back to the, um, uh, open, open offices versus, you know, uh, office versus open space working decision. You survey engineers and you get 50, 50, you know what I mean? Um, so you, you can't survey your way to, I think the right decision here. I think you have to just, you know, you can be collaborative. You don't have to be, uh, you don't have to, um, uh, 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 run a dictatorship without communication. That's probably a bad way to retain people, even those who agree with you. Um, but I, but I do regardless think regardless of policy, yeah, regardless of policy, I don't know, and you on any policy. Um, so I, I think that answers sort of most of your questions. I guess I don't know. You did, did I answer sort of like the does this factor into our decision making on an investment? Was that a was that is that like something you're no, curious I was going to actually push on that. That's one thing I was curious. Like, and maybe to make it a more pointed way, is there a company that you've either said yes to or said no to in terms of making an investment where this actually meaningfully influenced your internal thesis? Yes, let's do it or no, let's not. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I th- there's companies that have there's companies where my concerns about whether we were the right fit for them have been confirmed by by what I think is sort of like decisions that to me are just about uh, being influenced by the last Hacker News post they read, you know, or mm-hmm. not understanding fully the, impl- not understanding how to do a great remote, you know, sort of company well, right? So, um, folks have sort of said, yeah, we're doing remote and it's for these reasons. And, you know, I said, well, what do you, you know, how do you think about, you know, this complexity versus that? And I don't get particularly, um, you know, uh, well thought out answers or a curious mindset about it, or, um, uh, the reason they're doing it is just because, you know, somebody who they respect said, well, you know, this is the way to do it or that's the way to do it. Like, and so both those extremes, I think sort of, suggest to me that maybe we're not the best fit for them. But I don't think there's been a decision where, oh, we love everything, but, you know, you're going to be in office five days a week, or we love everything, but I'm not sure remote is going to work for this style of company. Um, What I have said in some cases uh, is, uh, I remember this one, I can't remember the company, but I do remember the discussion. And they wanted to do remote. And I wasn't sure if for this type of company and their type of style was going to make sense. And I said something to the extent of like, is this religion or strategy? Like, if you find over the next six to 12 months that, you know, this choice seems to be, you know, potentially hindering success, is it something that you think about being flexible and experimenting with or changing? Or is it like a fundamental cultural attribute, you know, um, and whether it's whether because they knew I wanted to hear, you know, I mean, I'm sort of a leading question, right? Um, but they said it's a strategy, right? Like, um, we're not, it's not a, um, we're not willing to uh, succeed or fail based upon it. We think it gives us the best ability to succeed. And here's why, but here's what also we're thinking about during this first year, um, because we know we get a shot, you know, before we get too big, we get a shot at, at changing it, the bigger we get, the harder it is to change it. And I was like, that's fine. Like, even if I went in, maybe being skeptical, I, I was perfectly willing to take that journey with them. Um, and they were yeah, remote. Hey, they were remote, hey, remote. So who knows? <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and look, I think the companies that have probably struggled, and this is not just a venture specific or a tech specific point, right? But I think the companies that have maybe struggled the most in, in follow through or alignment between executive and employee around model have been the ones that said, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do it forever. 
like this is our point of view, regardless of data that comes in, how we operate, does it work or not work? Like this is this is it. And the ones that have said, hey, look, we're going to be a little bit more iterative. We're going to have discussion. We're going to see what works and doesn't work. We're going to evolve our policy. Maybe it looks different for us as a company when we're 50 people versus 100 people versus 500 people based on our needs. Um, I think that humility in some ways in terms of approaching what obviously is still largely an unknown in terms of yeah. best practice or how to kind of operate through some of this model is, has, served, has served companies well. I think the best case for saying this is a durable trend that's only going to increase in the future is... Um, we'll have more and more people who have um, managed and led and built companies or been part of teams that have tried on various versions of this, and they will undoubtedly have best practices, know what to do the next time around. You know, you only need so many of those people to then help flip a company, right? Like, it's not like, oh, to be remote, you need 100% of the people having worked remote before. It's like, no, you need a small group of people across the organization who've done it before, and they can bring learnings and experience. Who really knows what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, Plus... Um, you know, people will figure out how to use uh, software tools and other um, types of aids, you know, support infrastructure to, you know, build um, collaboration, to build documentation, to build presence, um, you know, so it won't all just fall on the people. Some of that intelligence will be, will be built into software tools and templates. And the combination of those, you know, seems like <laughs> it would suggest that the success rate of, um, you know, employee choice um, slash remote, you know, uh, uh, increases in the future. I'm not a person who believes like it's going to be anything's going to be 100 percent or zero percent. Um, but you know, it would be tough to imagine it um, taking a step backwards, and easier to imagine taking steps forward. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. And 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 for what it's worth, I don't know if you and I have had this conversation before, but um, I do think that, that for that reason, whether companies do it as they start small or as they get larger, I do think they will tend to lean towards some model where in a somewhat organized way, people spend time in office part of the time, part of uh, the time out of office, you know, and, and whether that's company decided, I, I tend to lean more toward teams mm-hmm. starting to be able to decide that based on the needs and work practice, et cetera, of teams. I do think that's, that's where we're headed. You, you raised a really interesting point around, around tools and software. Um, and so from where you sit, do you think the technology in the near to the medium term, so let's call it the next three to five years, say, um, will get good enough to enable folks to be able to collaborate or ideate without co-location in that same way or at the same frequency? Or does that feel either too far off technologically or too inhuman, if you will, to actually be able to replace what it means to be able to sit side by side in an office at the early stage? Yeah, I'm so biased here because I'm old enough to, like I spent my formative years, you know, with teams, late nights, you know, but, uh, you know, I buy into the sort of notion of bonding over, you know, those in life, you know, uh, together experiences, you know, that type of stuff. And so I tend to believe that you need some foundation and refreshing of that along the way. I don't know if you need it a hundred percent of the time. Um, I guess I would say that I would always like teams and companies to care enough about performance and output that, you know, if they feel like they're at a point in a project or at a point in a, you know, in, in, in a, uh, heading towards a milestone that like become coming together feels right that, you know, you can do that. Right. And so whether that's the cadence of offsites, whether it's like you said, team-based and project schedule, whether it's just like the, Hmm, you know, we're getting stuck here. Like what's the, you know, what's the earliest we can all get together, you know, and not turning that into 
well, six months from now, there's a Tuesday on the calendar. Let's pencil that in. But like, how do we experiment with coming together as a, um, not just for, you know, ways of celebration, but for, you know, ways of unsticking or accelerating. So I tend to believe that there is something like anthropological and sociological there, not just, um, you know, lack of fidelity and tool set, but I'm a hundred percent also willing to believe that, um, you know, I am biased in that based upon age, um, you know, uh, personality type, uh, experience set, um, and that, people who grew up with those different circumstances and or are my same age, but have different sets of uh, uh, identity or, or, or lived experience um, could articulate a perfectly good reason why, you know, they believe differently. But, you know, I, I still joke, like, I like the pheromones of being near Sacha, you know, periodically, no matter, <laughs> no matter, you know, how long our relationship has lasted um, and how efficient we can be, you know, via, via Zoom or Slack. Yeah, totally. And, and, and look, I think one of the most interesting questions that we all face is, you know, if you assume that this is a adoption cycle, like any other adoption cycle, where there will be early adopters and laggards and other folks that learn over time, the number of people, the sheer number of employees at all levels, early, mid, senior, that are going through this and learning best practices and experimenting, um, the combination of that and technology, it feels like probably should lead to very different ways of thinking about how to do this. What is the right balance? Yeah. What starts to emerge over the coming years? I think it's um, it's easy to forget how early we are, you know, in, in terms of a, what's a pretty formative change in the way that we think about our yeah. relationship. I mean, with, look, you know, it makes my office. job easy in the sense of like homebrew is a small thing. We don't we don't have to we have an office, but we don't go into it most days, you know, all, all the entire team. But I've also decided that part of the implication is that I need to travel more as opposed to assuming that like, oh, yeah, every company, you know, the founders come out to the Bay Area, you know, four times a year to meet with investors or um, I can get a I can get a sense of the vibes for that company just by like walking around their office that like I need to go to where the founders are. I need to go to, where, you know, if they want me to come speak at an offsite, I will go to the offsite. You know, that part of it is that, you know, management in the company itself slash, you know, uh, cap table, people who have a stake in that company can make those right decisions, can make those decisions because it's probably right for the company or right for the broader team. Um, but then we should also be willing to take on uh, some of the responsibility for going to them <laughs> versus trying to always call them to us. Yep, I think that's well put. Maybe one last question to wrap this up and then, and then we'll do uh, a couple mm -hmm. other things. But the you know, last thing I was curious about is um, you know, we have a number of listeners of, of, of different types of varieties. Some are chief people officers, some are real estate execs. A, a bunch of them are founders, though, early stage tech practitioners in some way. Um, if you had to summarize from what you've seen across teams that have done this well or haven't done this well, the companies that you feel like are being more or less successful, are there any kind of like key takeaways or best practices that we haven't touched on so far that that you think are important for folks to be thinking about in this area? Yeah, well, so I always, I, you know, I think it's, if you haven't worked together before closely as co-founders or as an early team, I do think it's worth finding the chance to do that early in your life cycle. Um, I think it does solve a good, strong foundation. And it's not about just sort of making it, you know, locking yourself in a conference room and coding away. And it's also not on the flip side, just like getting an Airbnb and cooking for one another. It's like a mixture of both. Um, 
And so I would sort of front load a little bit of personal time together and working time together, knowing that it is easier to then switch into, com- switch into and compare a remote, a distributed, a, an employee choice to what it felt like all being together than it is to try to, um, you know, f- uh, uh, move to that later on to solve a problem or, you know, because, you know, once you raise that, w- once you raise enough money, you can do a proper offsite or that type of stuff. It's the same way, you know, it, it's no different than sometimes when I used to work with teams and, you know, engineers hate going, uh, people in general hate going date driven engineers, especially like the idea of like, Oh, this has to ship by a certain date, you know, especially when those dates are artificial and made up. Um, but I'm like, look, there's going to be at some point, if we are successful at some point in the next, you know, <laughs> some period of time, there's going to be a, wow, we have to hit this date because that's when the new iPhone comes out. And like, this is a great opportunity or this or that. So like, do you want the first time we try to be date driven, like when it actually matters or should we practice once, you know? And so uh, obviously you practice once, you know, type of thing. And so it's the same sort of thing. I think that like, um, you don't have to buy into the cult of, you know, cult of either and never touch, you know, the other alternative, like practice a little bit. So then you, you, you understand what it feels like and what some things are better at versus others. And so that would be my, you know, advice for, um, you know, founders who, you know, in the first six to 12 months of your company, um, experiment a little bit, then decide, or, you know, whatever you've decided, play with the other, um, so that you, you know, you have some of that, um, skill and ability and you know what it feels like. Um, so you can use it as a tool in your toolbox rather than getting drawn into the sort of, you know, the, uh, can I, I can't even say Twitter sphere, the X sphere of, uh, of debate around, <laughs> you know, which of these working styles is best. Yeah. I love that by the way. And in some ways it almost, I would almost distill it down and this probably isn't quite as rich as the way you described it, but it's, you know, you don't want to go into the war room for the first time when you're at war, you know, it's like, give yourself some reps of what it means to kind of like collaborate in that way. And that type of, um, whether it be intensity or co-located kind of way and, and learn and understand what works for you or yeah, not, you know? Exactly. Um, so Hunter, I really appreciate it. Every conversation that we do on flex perspectives, we always end with rapid fire. That's more just about you. So people can get to know you a little bit more as a person. And so if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you a few, all 10 seconds or less quick answers. Let's do it. Ready to go. All right. Uh, what was your, what was your very first job? I worked in a children's bookstore. It was great. Sell books to parents and so what do you do at the bookstore? I was like a retail worker. Like, you know, that's awesome. Yeah, it was great. I love like parents, you know, think their kids want one book and then you go and sit with the kid and actually talk to them and you find out what they really like. It's so much fun. I love it. I have a great appreciation for kids and kids and the way they learn and think. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. I love that, especially because my almost two year old, her favorite thing is to go to story time at the library right now. So that is awesome. Um, what is in similar theme? What is the best book you've read lately? Oh, best book I read lately. Well, you know, uh, Richard Rhodes, Making of the Atomic Bomb, I, le- I read last summer. And of course, now we've got the Oppenheimer movie, you know, that came out this year. And that's just still stands out top of mind um, for so many reasons. I was a history major in undergrad. And so I love picking a period of time or a particular event and just going deep on make you feel like you were in the room for the decisions and that sort of stuff. That's awesome. By the way, I'm very excited to see Oppenheimer. Um, Peaky Blinders is one of my favorite TV shows. Mm. And so, uh, you know, that cast is, uh, is very exciting to me. Um, when you are in meetings that are video, that are video conference meetings, are you typically camera on or camera off? I am, um, camera on, especially if it is a, 
you know, sort of smaller group. The only time I will go camera off, on, you know, other than the preference of other people, you know, sort of uh, asking, re requesting it is um, in larger group meetings where I feel like, you know, the faces are all kind of distracting if you're not, you know, a speaker type of stuff and they're not using, you know, sort of the host mode. Um, or um, if I have to, you know, leave the room or step up for a moment or something like that, I find like, you know, looking at people's torsos is less exciting. And so I'll try to turn, turn the camera off for that. But otherwise, you know, sort of camera on and, uh, and every once in a while showing you both of my hands so that you can, you can see I'm not multitasking. That's pretty good. And, uh, you know, it's funny because one of the things on camera I find I'm constantly doing is, you know, where the camera is versus where someone's eyes are. Like you mm. really can't tell the same ways in a room. I try to be self, yeah, I try to be self view off because I don't like looking at myself. I do find that distracting. It's funny. I've been doing that increasingly recently also because I do find it distracting too. Yeah. Um, show or movie that you are obsessed with right now? Oh, obsessed with. That's that's a strong. Oh, uh, so I just finished watching. I'm a slow binger. Like I watch things late and you know far after they came off. Um, I, so I recently finished Andor, the Star Wars. So good. Okay, so I'm not a huge science fiction guy. And what I love about it is two things. One, you don't have to know seven levels of depth into the Star Wars legend in order to mythos in order to appreciate it. Like maybe there's a bunch of Easter eggs, that type of stuff. But as somebody who's like only seen, you know, 75% of the movies, you know, obviously all the classic ones, like, um, you know, I, I, I felt, uh, I felt like I could follow it. The second thing is it's sort of just a workplace drama. Like, you know, people are like, you know, Oh, what happened with this and that? And so on and so forth. I'm like, I don't know. It's sort of more just like, you know, a little bit of a family drama and workplace drama that just happens to have like a Star Wars motif about it. I love it. It's like a procedural and I like stuff like that, you know, getting to the depths of like, you know, how the, also the empire, like the people and some of the people in the empire are very capable and you find yourself sort of thinking like, oh yeah, they were competent, like they're competent Nazis too, you know, like type of thing of like in the, in, 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 in you, you know, which, so I like the confusion of you find yourself sort of like being impressed by people who's um, ultimately are working for motives and goals that like are abhorrent. You know, it, it's funny that you say that because that was actually one of my biggest takeaways too from watching was, you know, a lot of the, and I have to admit, I am a bit of a Star Wars nerd, so I've, I've watched a bunch of stuff and it's, you know, a, a lot of the older interpretations, it just feels like this uh, very black and white um, kind of like difference between, you know, one side and the other, and you'd only get so much depth in terms of what's going on in the Empire. This is almost like the Empire running like a really efficient, brutal corporation uh, yeah. where people are like highly talented and executives in the kind of like the palace intrigue. Right. And it kind I'm like, of, oh, that's like Amazon. It's like Amazon or Microsoft. Totally. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so it kind of felt, you know, that they probably wouldn't appreciate that very much. But, you know, it's like that kind of had that feel where it's like, oh, wait, this is um, this is kind of what happens after the event in a way that I thought was um, that I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, Favorite, uh, two more for you. Um, what is uh, your favorite piece of software either related to uh, future of work, AI, flexible work that you're that you're using or interested in right now? God, I know it's so uncool to admit. I think email's freaking fantastic. In a world where there's like still so many <laughs> siloed pieces of information and, and like proprietary protocols, like the fact that email just works is great. I use Superhuman. Um, it may be very productive. I don't automate anything, but I do have a bunch of like um, uh, templates that I'll use and, and, and customize and stuff because I, I do like to reply to people, even if I don't, you know, I try to reply to every cold email at least once type of stuff. And it it helps me, it helps me do those things. So, uh, I, you know, shout out to email. Um, also, I find myself, especially during like peak, peak remote, um, using things like loom and um just 
uh, video in general, uh, asynchronous video. So what I found myself is like, I didn't want to take a bunch of meetings. I was getting Zoom fatigue, so on and so forth. But sometimes people would have questions for me that I could answer async. And I'd say, okay, just send over your question. And then I'd see it and I'd be like, I don't want to, this is going to be 20 minutes to type a response, but three minutes to record one. And so I just started quick hitting on a bunch of like, when people ask me questions, replying with a, you know, 30 second to five minute video. And, um, and it's great. Like, I don't, you know, I, I use Loom in particular for it. I probably, you know, pay for hundred percent of the features and use 5% of the features. Um, but I'm all into async, async video responses now. Yeah, totally. It's super helpful and uh, and so much richer, much more context yeah. sometimes it yeah. comes through that I way. Get to, yeah, I get to gesticulate uh, a little. I'm an East Coast Jew. I get to gesticulate a little bit. I get to meander. Uh, I get to like put some inflection and pause, even if it's totally stagecraft. Yeah, well understood and appreciated from another East Coast Jew, so I totally get it. Um, and then one last one for you. Uh, for anybody who's listening, who's interested in some of the things you had to say, wants to read more about you or learn more about Homebrew, where should they go? Hunter, hunterwalk.com. Uh, my, my, my dry piece of land on the internet. Um, I've been blogging for like longer than I know you probably since the early mid two thousands. And so that's probably the only, you know, you can find Hunter walk on most social spaces, but like hunterwalk.com is the place that I care about most. Um, and then homebrew.co. But if you go to hunterwalk.com and keep that top of mind, you'll, you'll be able to find everything else. Awesome. Uh, Hunter, always a pleasure to catch up. Uh, it's crazy that we know each other for nine years now, and I love that story. And uh, I find you incredibly thoughtful on so many topics related to startups. So I really appreciate you spending the time with me. Oh, thanks so much. Obviously, the respect and friendship is all mutual. Um, I appreciate, um, you know, you're one of the people when I say, how can I help? You actually have a few ideas and I try my best to, you know, <laughs> to, to make you happy. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Please also consider giving us a rating or leaving a review as that helps other listeners find the podcast. For more Flex Index content, including past episodes, our Flex Index newsletter, and monthly research reports, visit flex.scoopforwork.com. See you next time.